0: Uh, don't know if you've been following the news this week. A few of you have talked to me about it this morning already, but uh, last week, last Sunday, uh, Volcano Fuego erupted in Guatemala. Guatemala is a country that's near and dear to our heart. Um, we spent two and a half months there last fall. We're going back again this fall. Um, last year, I brought 19 of you there with me, and uh, the volcano that we saw that evening, uh, when we were taking pictures with the lava coming down and it was smoking most days. That's, that's the same volcano, one of the most active in Central America and uh, uh, it puffs most days and so I think that's why this disaster was so bad because people didn't think that this was really anything out of the ordinary but uh, if you've been following news or if you haven't here's what happened Um, it exploded and this huge puff of smoke and uh, hot lava and hot mud came down and it buried uh, a few different towns and uh, people, uh, right now there's 101 people dead, there's 200 people missing, and that number's just only going to grow. And so our family's been watching this very closely this week, praying for them, and, uh, and just watching what's going on, and just seeing the horror and the devastation. It's so incredibly sad. Yet at the same time, Uh, We have partners on the ground in Guatemala, and it's been interesting following them as well. Uh, Those of you who came with me last year, you would know Luis Carlos. He does ministry in Antigua. Antigua is very close to where the volcano went off. And he was driving home... And this ash was falling on his car so much so that he, was, he had the windshield wipers going. So he knew something significant was going on. And then he drove into his driveway. And in his backyard, his church had gathered. He didn't call them together or do anything like that. But they gathered in his backyard. He's just recently planted a church. And all the people there were like, Luis, we have to do something. We're rallying together to help these people out. So they set up a shelter and food distribution and water. And they, and they got in there and they got their hands dirty. And they've been doing that all week, uh, providing and relief for those who are affected there 's other people that we know that are raising funds uh, for water filters and getting water filters where people don 't have clean water uh, where the volcano and the ashes has really uh, wrecked things and so in the midst of the disaster in the midst of the sadness in the midst of the chaos, it is Christians who are stepping up to the plate to help to be a tangible difference um, to provide the things that are needed uh, individuals and churches and NGOs and so. Uh, I've been sad this week, but I've also been encouraged. And I've been reminded at uh, our call as Christians to to be engaged in our world and to respond when things are hard and to be light and salt in our world. And so uh, I'm reminded of the early church, and I've talked about this before, but the early church, one of the primary reasons it grew so fast in the Roman Empire was because of the acts of charity. People were so incredibly um, taken by the fact that the early church Responded when the plagues hit, responded when earthquakes hit, that they didn't flee, instead they stayed back and they helped out. And so, um, in the midst of disaster, Christians have an opportunity to really uh, step up to the plate. Um, speaking of Guatemala, uh, my family and I, we went to, we did a quick trip to Abbotsford on Friday and we came back yesterday. And uh, uh, the reason we went there is because Alvaro and Florinda were getting baptized. Uh, Alvaro and Florinda were here in March, they lived with us for a week. Uh, they're from Guatemala, they've got a six-month um, scholarship and they're in, living in Abbotsford and through, uh, through going to the Christian school and being connected to the church, they felt compelled to get baptized and so of course we wanted to be there to support them and to celebrate with them and uh, just to see how their faith has grown and how um, just the people that they are becoming. It's interesting, uh, I was asked to baptize them which I was really quite happy to do. But it it, it, some, um, it sparked some really interesting conversation with the school because the school wasn't sure if I was allowed to do it. Um, so they asked, like, are you a pastor? What do you do? I said, yeah, I work for an MB church part-time. Are you licensed or ordained? I'm not licensed or ordained. And so they, they were trying to figure out, okay, well, can, is he allowed to baptize? Is this legitimate? And so Um, one of the ways they got around it is I actually ended up, I was able to baptize Alvaro and Florinda and it was allowed because an ordained pastor was present so they could sign off on it to somehow make this a legitimate baptism, which is really interesting, right? And I've kind of been stewing on this all week and just thinking, I mean, where do we, where do we get this idea? What is it, what are the requirements to baptize somebody, um, so interesting. It leads us to a couple other questions. What qualifies somebody to stand up here and preach and to give a message? We're going we're gonna to gather around the, the table, communion. And uh, what qualifies somebody to be able to administer the sacraments, communion and baptism? Is there like uh, prerequisites, requirements? Do you have to uh, somehow work full time or be ordained or be licensed? These are, these are questions that people are asking. Uh, I, I work with the mission and... Um, we just planted a church in Belize. In Belize, there's a, a lot of old Mennonite colonies. And there's a church that, that we've planted, an evangelical church, from the old Mennonites. And they have found freedom. Um, because they were living in very uh, legalistic, ritualistic, uh, pretty much unchristian um, religious systems. And so uh, they've been called out and we've planted this church. And, and it's been going for about six months now. And they're trying to figure out what it means to be church. What, what it means to, to do this together. And they, they don't have a pastor yet. We're actually training somebody from within their community uh, so they can get some education and come back and be their pastor. But in the meantime, they're, trying to, they're struggling to know how to do this. So they don't do communion and they don't do baptism. They wait for us Canadians from the mission to come down and do it for them because they don't think that uh, within their congregation they have the ability to do this. And we go down there and we teach them. This is, this is not the way you're supposed to think about church. There's not a two-tiered system. Um, is there a difference between clergy and lady? Is there, is there this difference between a professional Christian and, and the rest of us? Does such a thing uh, exist? Is there a hierarchy? So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. Is there a two-tiered system? This is actually a conversation that's been going on in the church for quite a long time. And so... Uh, bear with me. I'm going to put on my history hat here for a few minutes and just uh, introduce the conversation to you. Protestant Reformation happened in the 1500s. uh, Before that point, if you were a Christian, it means you were either part of the Catholic Church or if you lived in the East, you were part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. There was no such thing as MB churches or Alliance churches or Pentecostal churches. The Protestant Church had not been uh, born yet, but um, that all changed in the Reformation. People like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Erwin Zwingli, They all began starting to uh, call out the abuses of the church. They saw so much of what the church was doing was just wrong and unbiblical. And they started uh, making noise about it. And that's where the Reformation uh, happened. And what emerged from that movement changed the church forever. And we as evangelicals uh, are products of that movement. There are a lot of different reasons uh, why the Reformation happened, but there were three primary battle cries. Three pri- big, big reasons why, uh, why the church split theologically. The first two you probably know, and the third one is what we're going to talk about this morning. But here's the three. The first one is faith alone. Uh, we are saved not by works, but we are saved by faith in Christ. You cannot earn it. You cannot work towards it. No amount of goodness will, will give you an assurance that you are saved, um, and many people in that day believed that, and, and, and a lot of the, the bishops in the Catholic Church were actually teaching that, that you can't actually have assurance, you have to do this and this and this, and you have to earn your salvation. And the, the reformer said, no way, it is by faith alone. Secondly, scripture alone, the final authority and truth are found in the Bible, not in the tradition of the ri- and rituals of the church. Back then, uh, much of the church was really focused on rituals and tradition. The scripture didn't play a big part in the church. Uh, the, the bishops and the pope didn't even encourage uh, the laity to read the Bible very often. Uh, the Bible was in Latin. It wasn't translated into the local language at the time. And so the reformer says, no. The Bible is so important and we got to get it translated into people's uh, language and we got to preach in their language and we got to encourage them to read the Bible for themselves. It is through Scripture alone. Scripture has the final authority, not tradition, not ritual. It is through Scripture alone. Thirdly is the priesthood of believers. The priesthood of believers says this, the, pi- the Pope and the bishops are not the only ones who can do ministry. There is not somehow this hierarchy uh, going on. It is a cry against a two-tiered system uh, within the church. And back then, there was very, it was very much a culture where there was professional clergy and they were considered to be the spiritual ones. The monks and the pope and the bishops and these were like the real Christians. And the rest of the people, well, their job was to come to church, was to listen to a sermon that they didn't understand in a Bible that they didn't understand and to receive the sacraments. And they didn't really know what was going on. And the reformer says, this is so wrong. We cannot set up this two-tiered, uh, system. This is wrong. So it's the priesthood of believers. So the reformers passionately rejected this and they pushed for getting the scriptures into people's hands and encouraged people to engage in their own faith personally. So I want to quote from Martin Luther here who is really our big reformer. And this is what he says. I think I got it up on the screen here. Yeah. Martin Luther writes, a priest is not made. He, is, he must be born a priest, he must inherit his office, I refer to the new birth, the birth of water and the spirit. Thus, all Christians must become priests, children of God and co-heirs with Christ, the most high priest. Martin Luther says, all people are priests. There's no levels of Christians. There's no such thing as a professional Christian, clergy and lady. We've got to break down these, um, these structures. And that was a radical view at the time. Because the Pope and the Bishop really did have all the power in the church. And so you can imagine, they they were really annoyed when the Reformers started saying, hey, like, this is wrong. The priesthood of believers say we are all equals and there is no hierarchy. Um, Fast forward 200 years. 18th century, the Protestant church has been born. It's made great strides in the understanding of faith alone. The scriptures have been translated into the local language. They are, they are finally preaching in the local language. They're encouraging people to read their Bibles and engage in their own faith. But the priesthood of believers had yet to really sink in. Still at that time, pastors were doing most of the work and the lady basically uh, showed up to church and received whatever the pastor gave them. And it was still very much a two-tiered system. One of my favorite writers, uh, uh, Philip Jacob Spener, He's a pietist thinker in the 18th century. He's deeply concerned with how little people are engaging in their own faith, deeply concerned about how little impact the local church was having in uh, shaping the society. And this is what he writes He says, Every Christian is bound not only to offer himself and what he has, his prayer, thanksgiving, good works, alms, etc., but also industriously to study the Word of God with the grace that is given to him to teach others, especially those under his own roof. In fact, One of the principal reasons why the ministry cannot accomplish all that it ought is that it's too weak without the help of the universal priesthood. And he says we all need to engage. We cannot set up this two-tiered system. We all have a role to play in our own faith. And now the Pietist movement led to the evangelical movement and we are an evangelical church. And the evangelical church has tried to break down these hierarchies and tried to uh, empower the priesthood of believers to say it's not up to the professionals to do this. This is, this is something that we all do. Conversation that's still happening today. John Stott, one of the most influential theologians of our day, 21st century, says this. I do not hesitate to say that to interpret the church in terms of a privileged clerical caste or hierarchical structure is, is to destroy the New Testament doctrine of the church. And yet, as I, as I uh, experienced this weekend, we still think in terms of professional Christianity. Pastors are professionals. It's the church's job to show up and put money in the basket so he can get paid. And come and warm a pew and the pastor does all the ministry. And many people think like this. But it's unbiblical. It is against what the reformers taught. And uh, it's it's what we're talking about today. And so, uh, why am I telling you all this? We're in a time of transition as a church. And sometimes it's worth just taking a step back and evaluating what does it mean to be the church? What kind of church do we want to be? We don't have a lead pastor for a few months. So does that mean that we're less of a church? We don't have a lead pastor, we're less of a church? Should we be nervous that somehow we're unqualified as a community to do ministry in Lake Country because we no longer have a lead pastor? Is a church dependent on its pastor to be the church that it's called to be? Are we allowed to do communion or baptism without an ordained, licensed lead pastor? As I pose these questions, I hope in your heart there's like this resounding, no, absolutely not. Right, Doug was an awesome pastor and we're gonna miss his leadership for sure. But this church was not built on Doug's, uh, on Doug's shoulders and it's not gonna fall because Doug is no longer the leader. Many churches, and we know this, many churches rise and fall on the shoulders, on, on the charisma of the lead pastor. When they come, the lead pastor comes, the church explodes and then oftentimes uh, the church is built on that person's shoulders and then the lead pastor goes and the church goes away. You know, it suffers. We, we, we can all probably think of churches like that. Uh, that's not Creekside. And that's what I love about Creekside. That's not our mentality. And I think this is a testament to Doug's ministry. Doug always highlighted other people above himself. Um, Doug preached two weeks ago in his last sermon. It was his goodbye sermon. Not that he went anywhere, but it was his goodbye sermon from lead pastor. And he spent, if you he were here, he spent 45 minutes highlighting Creekside, talking about all the ministries that get done by all the different people in our church. And I walked away from that sermon just so encouraged and so inspired by our church. I thought about the church that I, that I used to go to and I thought if I were to give that message when I left, it may have lasted four minutes, three or four minutes. Like I could count on my hand the amount of people that actually helped make the church be the church. And yet, Doug went 45 minutes and probably could have kept going. Uh, I, love, I love the mentality here at Creekside. Laura and I came here three and a half years ago, and we are amazed at the volunteer nature of our church. I was immediately struck by how many people are involved and, in making uh, this Sunday morning happen and, and engaged throughout the week to be the church in Lake Country. You know, the average church plant lasts three years. We're 11 years old. We're not even a church plant anymore, and that's a testament to, uh, to so many who serve here. I was up this morning, I was here at 7.30, and this place was full of guys, of people, uh, guys and gals, setting up, getting, getting ready, bringing the trailer in, set it, setting up ushers. Uh, and we could just go on and on about how many people help make this happen. The reason I want to talk about the priesthood of believers this morning is because I want to continue to encourage us to be this kind of church. I want to encourage us to be the kind of church that doesn't put a pastor on a pedestal, and then sit back and watch them do ministry. I want to encourage us in this. We all want to continue, to, I want to implore us to carry on being the church that God's called us to be in our community. With or without a lead pastor. So, let's go to the scriptures. It's the most important part. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have our Bibles, this is where we're going to look. First Peter 2. Chapter two: the priesthood or the concept of the priesthood of believers. It runs throughout the whole of the New Testament, but this is like the primary passage. If you read any of the reformers uh, uh, justifying the priesthood of believers, they go to this passage. And so we're gonna we're gonna camp here for the rest of the morning. First Peter chapter two, verses nine to thirteen. I think we got it up there. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's making some really significant statements here about who we are. When you choose to follow Christ, this is who you are. This is your identity. These are identity statements. This is what he says about us. You're a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, and you are a special possession. Have you ever thought about yourself that way? As, as part of the holy nation? As part of the royal priesthood? As a special possession? But this is what Peter says to the believers. Um, big identity statements. And I want you to notice, Peter, he's not just talking to leaders here. He's talking to the whole church. He's talking to the community, to everybody. Not a two-tiered system here. Uh, let's understand the significance of these statements. Uh, in order to do that, we have to go back to the Old Testament where these statements actually find their meaning. These are the st- th- these identity statements Peter is drawing from the Old Testament. So we need to go back there to understand it more fully. So uh, Exodus. In Exodus, the Hebrew people, they've just escaped Egypt and God is forming for himself a people group, the Israelites, the Hebrew people. And he's forming for himself a nation who is going to represent God to the rest of the nations that was the role of Israel. And so in Exodus this is what he says. He says Exodus 19 verse 5 and 6. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So this is God speaking to Moses who is then to pass it on to the Israelites. The people of Israel were God's chosen people the people of Israel were uh, called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were God's special possession. In that culture, priests acted as mediators between God and his people. Not only did Israel have specific priests, but as a nation in general, they were called to be a priestly nation. And they had access to God. And it was this access to God that actually made them a priestly nation. And so because of this priestly call, Israel was considered a holy nation in God's sight. Holy because of this special relationship with God. And it was a relationship based on the Old Covenant, on this covenant relationship that they had with the living God. One of the primary roles of this priestly call was to proclaim the praises of God to the nations around them. And we see this everywhere in the Old Testament. I want to just highlight one of the passages here in Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 20 and 21. I provided... I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So there's a reason that God has formed this group of people and called them a holy nation and a priestly nation. It is so that they can declare the praises of God to who? To the nations around them. This is why Israel is constantly called to be a light to the Gentiles. This was their call. This was their point. This is the reason they were called a holy nation. So with this background in mind, let's go back and reflect on what Peter writes here. In First Peter, Peter is writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jewish people. He's not writing to Israelites. He's writing to Gentile people. And he says to them, you are chosen people. You are royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a special possession. Everything has changed. Because we are no longer under the Old Covenant. We are under the New Covenant. And under this New Covenant, you, as believers in Jesus Christ, you assume the role of Israel. You assume the role of Israel to be a light to the nations around you. You assume the role of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles and to proclaim the praises of God to those around you. That is your job now. As a church, we now assume this role. We bear witness to the living God. We, like the priests, are called to represent God in everything that we do. And so if you are a follower of Jesus here today, you like the people that, 1 Peter is, that Peter is talking to in 1 Peter, you are a priestly nation. You are a chosen people. You are a special possession. You belong to God. And just as it was for the Israelites, this identity also comes with responsibility. And that responsibility is to declare his praises and to represent God to the nations around you. And so you can see why the reformers got so worked up about this two-tiered system of the day. When you reflect on a passage like this, you see that there really is no room for saying that only one person, one Christian, is a priest and all the others aren't. Did you know that nowhere in the scriptures is any individual person ever called a priest? Priest is always a title for the whole community of faith. You never see that title for one person. Check out Revelations here. Uh, a letter written to the church, to the community of believers. Revelations chapter 1, 5 and 6, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us, the community, to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Five chapters later, Revelations, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God person. You purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. So, these are just two, two passages to show you that the whole idea of priesthood is not something for an elite group of people or an educated group of people or for somehow professional Christians. No, priesthood is for all of us, for the community of believers. We are part of the priesthood. And so we all have a role to play in God's kingdom. What's that role? Let's go back to Peter here. Um, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, it's up there. Perfect. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day. He visits us. So it's actually really quite simple what our job is here. As God's people, we are to look different. We're supposed to look different than those around us. And Peter here highlights two things. The first thing is that he says is we avoid sin. We are people to avoid sin. Pastor Phil talked about this last week. He talked about um, following the desires of God of the spirit instead of following the desires of our flesh. Not giving in to what our flesh desires, but giving into how the spirit of God is at work in our lives. So we avoid sin. We don't engage in those activities that we know are harmful, that we know are against what God wants us to be about. And then number two, we live lives that are different than those around us. And the result of which is going to help other people glorify God. That's what Peter's talking about here. He says that even if we're accused of doing wrong, it is our good deeds in the end that are going to point other people to Jesus. And that is, our, that is our role as a priestly nation. As we live these holy and priestly lives, our lives themselves point other people to the reality of the living God. Our lives point people to Jesus. I love this. It's so practical. It's easy to understand. Peter says live different." Look different. Represent Jesus. If you do this, other people will be drawn to him. It's not just an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. We represent Jesus when we go to school. We represent Jesus in our families. We represent Jesus in our workplace, as business owners, as stay-at-home moms. Whatever, whatever situation you find yourself in, you are part of the priestly call to represent Jesus. This is who you are. This is what we are called to do. Implications for this doctrine, this priesthood of believers. Number one, every Christian acts as a representative of Christ. Every Christian plays a role. It's not the job of the people standing up on the stage. This is for all of us. We all do it. We all represent our faith. We all represent Jesus as part of the priesthood. There is no such thing as a professional Christian. There's absolutely no such thing. We've got to break down these hierarchies. We are all engaged in in the kingdom work by pointing other people to the reign of God. God has gifted each and every one of us and the church needs all of our gifts in order to to live out this call as a priestly nation. So we all need to exercise our gifts and we all need to engage. It's something that we do together. We each play our role. Number two, churches should not expect their pastors to be the primary ones engaged in ministry. Ministry is something that is shared among the congregation. And again, I want to say I think Creekside, we do this really well as a church and I want to continue to uh, push us in this direction that ministry is something that is shared. We don't expect the pastor to do everything. Uh, I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of ordination. In the, in, the, in the two previous churches I've been a part of, I've been asked to be ordained and uh, started going through the process and then actually stopped it. Because theologically, I actually have a hard time being set apart somehow from everybody else because I'm such a firm believer in this priesthood of believers that I don't think ordination is something that we should practice. If anything, if we're going to practice ordination, it should be something that we all do. Let's just all get ordained. But I don't want to create this two-tiered system because I think it's really, really unhealthy. And it sets us up for the guy up front on the stage to be the professional and the rest of us to go, oh, well, I'm glad he's doing a good job. I'm just going to go on with my life. Right? And that is not our call. We are called to represent Christ in everything. So then you might ask, well then what is the role of the pastor in the first place? Why do we even need to have this? Last passage I want to read here, Ephesians chapter 4. This is where I've really learned and understood what it means to be a pastor. It's what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So you see what one of the roles of the pastor and the teacher is in this passage? It is to equip the church. It is to it is to teach and to preach and to train and to equip, so that the rest of the church, the rest of the body is released in order to do ministry. So it's an important call. Uh, being a pastor, is, it's an important call. Um, but a pastor time should be spent teaching and preaching and developing and helping other people live out their God-given gifts and live out their personal call as, as they are part of the priesthood. It's an important role. I'm really glad that Jeremy and Kim are coming to help us in this. I pray for them lots. I hope that you do too. And I hope that they're great pastors to come and to lead us and to equip us. And to set us forth to do the ministry that we've all been called to do. Being a pastor is a call. But it's not a call that is something that is somehow higher than the rest of us. It is just one, of, one among many of the gifts. And we have to keep it in its correct category. So that's the priesthood of believers. So, Creekside, I, just, I want to encourage you this morning. You are part of the priesthood. You are... You are the chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a special possession so that you will declare the praises of God to those around you. In every aspect of your life, this is your call. To live such good lives among those that don't believe in Christ that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God in heaven. May that be true of all of us, that we would live these kind of lives that we'd be the people that God has called us to be. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your words that are just so clear. Thank you that you have a call in all of our lives to be representatives of you, and I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would be um, the priesthood that you've called us to be. God, I pray your blessing upon Creekside. I pray that we would continue to move forward here in our church in mission, And in evangelism, God, we continue to lift up Jeremy and Kim and their kids to you. And we pray that you would um, just be preparing their hearts to come and lead us. But that we would be a church that would rally around them. That we would be equipped by them. And that we would be sent out to be the people that you've called us to be, God. We thank you uh, that you are good. And that you call us these amazing things. So God, may we live this out well, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.